1: You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and enjoy.
0: Hello, my beautiful listeners, and welcome to Skylet. This is the Skylights Books Podcast, and I'm your host, Lance Morgan. Today, I'm super excited to be welcoming my new friend, Amy shira Tidal, to read from her new book, Fighting for Space, and then we'll be in conversation, which will be so much fun. Um, Before I introduce her, I just want to remind you that Skylight Books uh, right now offers curbside pickup and online ordering on our website, which is www.skylightbooks.com and when we're and when we're open for browsing hopefully soon um, remember to still keep on socially distancing yourself from others and to bring a mask um, to the store and enjoy. (laughs) Um, Today we have Amy Shearer-Title is a space fight historian, author, and public speaker who much like her subjects is one of the few academically trained young women in her field. She earned a bachelor's degree with combined honors in history of science and technology and classics as well as a master's in sciences and technology studies before leaving academia for a a popular science writing. She has since written for more than two dozen websites including the BBC and Time Magazine online. Earned a group achievement award from NASA as a part of the New Horizon mission, New Horizons mission to Pluto team, and appears frequently as an expert interviewee in a number of TV shows and documentaries. She also maintains her blog, Vintage Space, and its companion YouTube channel. Welcome, Amy. I'm so excited and happy to have you here today.
2: Good morning. Thank you so much for having me.
0: No problem. So exciting. Um, I just like before you go into reading, I just want to say I like just reading through all your Achievements in your bio. You're the coolest person.
2: Well, thank you. I do. My favorite thing about those quick little bios is it makes you sound really awesome in like four <laughs> sentences. <laughs> and I and
0: I think it sounds like that mostly because you are. I'm just gonna say I think you are. <laughs> All right. So well, you have a reading for us today.
2: I do. I do, and I'm gonna give a little bit of context um, around these two passages, just mm-hmm. to kind of give give you and give the listeners a little bit of a sense of kind of where we are. So. Um, Fighting for Space is a dual biography of two, two female pilots try, um, and kind of how they navigated the world as America transitioned from aviation into spaceflight. And our main character is Jackie Cochran, who I am a little bit obsessed with. <laughs> um, and she has such a fascinating backstory that I won't get into the details of. But um, all you need to know uh, before we get into this part is um, she was born Bessie Pittman. All right. And this, oh, I should say this is happening in 19, the late 1920s. All right. In the span of a decade, Bessie had been married and divorced, welcomed a son, and then buried him. She had buried her father and her brother. Her sisters and beloved brother Joseph were all raising their own families, and the only family Bessie had left was her mother, with whom she continued to clash. Defuniac Springs in Florida held nothing but painful memories for Bessie. She decided the time had come to make a clean break. One midsummer day in 1929, 23-year-old Bessie arrived at the train station in Pensacola. Her worldly possessions were packed into suitcases, and her life savings was tucked away in her pocketbook, including the money she'd gained from selling her Ford Model T. She bought a ticket and boarded a train heading north. Watching the countryside stream past the window, she decided to reinvent her past. She would tell people that she was an orphan, that the Pittmans had taken her in but never really cared for her. This would explain her lack of family ties. She would never admit to knowing her biological family and would instead tell people that her foster parents, Molly and Ira, had been so poor and unloving that she had been forced to leave the house at 11 years old to find work. She also decided to never tell anyone about her marriage or her son, though she couldn't bear to erase Robert Jr. entirely. He was her happiest memory. She needed to keep him with her somehow, so decided to keep the only thing left that they had shared, a name. She would remain a Cochrane to keep her little boy alive in her heart, though she would tell people she'd picked the surname at random, running her finger through a phone book. As the train sped further north, Bessie Pittman faded into obscurity. When she arrived in New York City, days later, she retained Bessie's skill as a hairdresser and nurse, her obsession with cleanliness, and her moxie, but nothing else. No one would ever know Bessie Pittman, she decided, but the world would absolutely know Miss Jacqueline Cochrane. So from there, we get into a lot of Jackie's life. Uh, Jackie did be, (laughs) the world did know her name for sure. She became one of the uh, most decorated, most successful pilots of the 20th century. And as we follow her story along, we also meet our other main character, Jerry Cobb. Now, Jerry, 25 years, Jackie's junior, was the first woman to, or the woman who, I should say she was in the right place at the right time to take the same medical tests that the Mercury astronauts took in the late 1950s that qualified them for spaceflight. And here's where the story kind of gets into the meat of the issue of women in space because the media had a, the media heard about Jerry taking medical tests and ran with the story, much, I I equate it to the way Twitter can run with something on a dime. And because Jackie was the foremost pilot, one of the foremost pilots in the world at the time, she was constantly being asked to comment on it. So the two women ended up in this battle to control the narrative of a non existent female spaceflight program that played out in the media. So we're gonna pick this up with one more passage in, um, in the fall of 1961. So we're quite a bit further in the future. By fall, NASA decided that the time for extreme caution was over. Operations and planning shifted to preparing the larger Atlas rocket that could put the Mercury spacecraft into orbit for manned flights. And John Glenn, after serving as backup twice, was finally prime pilot. He felt like he'd drawn the first orbital mission by chance more than anything else, but he didn't care. John was going to be the first American to orbit the Earth. NASA wanted to launch one final orbital mission with a primate on board before announcing John's a new assignment. Without a new astronaut to write about, journalists returned to the story of the female astronaut Hopefuls. Jerry's was, of course, a familiar face, but after Marion Dietrich's article appeared in the September issue of McCall's, she and her twin sister, Jan, were added to the public's consciousness. Alongside articles about decorating children's rooms and the dangers of subsidizing marriages, the story of the twins learning to fly together and details about Marion's time in Albuquerque appeared under the headline, First Woman into Space. Across the board, headlines and reports inflated the program, turning it from a medical endeavor into an actual female spaceflight program. Though the world didn't know the names of the Lovelace women, they were obliquely dubbed the astronauts and described as a team of women pilots training for spaceflights. Articles named Randy Lovelace among the men behind the program and speculated wildly that the first women to fly would be flat-chested since it would simplify finding a spacesuit that fit. The real female pilots, meanwhile, 11 of them in all shapes and sizes were quietly preparing to travel to Florida. Their expectations varied, some hoping their time would yield good data and others hoping to join the space program. Jerry, the 12th member of the group and their self-appointed spokeswoman, hoped their success would fast track her own flight into space. From there, we do follow the rest of the story about what happened, but I won't spoil it.
0: <laughs> no, no, I, I'm like, I was just in, this is, oh my God, such cool information. Thank you for sharing that wonderful reading. Um, So to start off our conversation, I just want to ask you about you. What are you doing? Like, we're all in this pandemic right now, right? I mean, I mean, you've heard of it, right? Just making sure, yeah, you, yeah right, it's... <laughs> It's big news now. It's big news. It's, um,
2: (laughs) yeah, no, um, it's, uh, it's been interesting, right? It's
0: been (laughs) been an interesting time. What have you been doing to like, um, just to like send yourself, like, what is, what has been like calming you in like media, like, or media, like as in film, television, books, music, whatever.
2: Um, the weirdest thing about this pandemic for me, I mean, I've been working from home Mm -hmm. and self-employed for over a decade. So my daily life is very unchanged. (laughs) It's a very, it's actually been really strange that in this kind of the initial seasoning period where everyone started working from home, you know, Mm -hmm. which was like right when the the hardcover of the the book came out. So it became this, like, I was trying to get people to respond to emails because we're trying Mm -hmm. to promote this thing. And everyone else who's never worked from home is like, everything is slow. Everything's delayed. And I'm like, you can still respond to an email. I do this every day. (laughs) So in in a weird way, it's like my my own little bubble has Mm. remained very the same, Um, which has been kind of nice. I just miss, you know, seeing other people and going outside. Um, But yeah, no, I've been kind of, like you said, finding a lot of things to do online to kind of find comfort not really even comfort but find company um been doing a lot more reading um which has been really fun and turning to oh man a lot more video games um because that's kind of the one thing like i think even no matter what you do i think you need something that allows your brain to rest Mm -hmm. i know for me you know writing about aviation in space like it's it gets heavy so i want something that allows my brain to totally rest and can you know, reset for the next day. Right. Video games have become a huge part of that. Um, Christmas, I completely redid my Animal Crossing island, so.
0: Oh my God, I. <laughs>
2: yeah, it was it. a fun endeavor, but it, I felt rested. I actually, I mean, considering I couldn't go anywhere, couldn't reset with like a mm-hmm. new, you know, Vista out the window, it felt nice to just spend some time. It feels like spending some time elsewhere, but um, yeah, a lot of that. I find, I haven't really been doing movies or TV as much, Okay. Strangely. See, you
0: you're the first person who's like, everyone I think has been doing the opposite of where they've been going to movies and TVs and they're just like, yeah. oh, I've been finding, you're the first person I'm like books. And I love that. Like <laughs> books are, yeah. I'm glad that books are giving you that comfort right now. Any particular titles that have been like, that just like really like, was just like something that you're like, wow, this was exactly what I needed right now.
2: Oh, what have I even been reading? I've been, so I've been taking on, I've, I've taken on a little side quest recently. Mm-hmm. So um, the, I think the one thing that bio didn't mention is I'm actually Canadian. I'm from Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been living in the U.S. for 10 years. And as a Canadian living in the U.S., working in American history and seeing <laughs> what is happening in current day America, I have a lot of questions. Like I'm <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm doing a, a, a deep dive uh, into U.S. history right now, which is... Um, you know coming from an academic background in history is has been really interesting to kind of approach it like that mm-hmm. and really understand like what america <laughs> um so i've been doing a lot of reading of looking at you know pre-revolutionary history to understand mm-hmm. the roots of everything that has kind of been the foundation of like what's allowed things to happen over the last 200 years um so that's i've been doing a lot of that which is not the most restful reading but it's um I like I like taking on a little a little side project like that. I'm trying to think of what else I've I've read currently. I think the last book I read my mom gave me uh, was I can't remember the author's name, which is terrible, but Amy and Isabel, which is a it's a book written in the nineties. It's a, a coming-of-age story about a mother and a daughter in a small town. Um mm-hmm. I think it takes place in the, in the late 60s. There's some some context clues that make it late 60s, but um, just kind of an interesting study of a mother-daughter relationship that my mom, my mom read in a book group actually, so she sent it to me because she thought I might have a, an appreciation of it now that I'm her adult daughter, not you know, 16, which is the yeah. age of the daughter named Amy in the book. So that's the last one I read. Currently also picking at uh, Jerry Seinfeld's Is This Anything, which is mm. just
0: hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, um, that sounds so much fun. Um, that I'm glad you're, yeah, no, I'm glad you're getting all these just reading done. I feel like the big part of every yeah. stress in the pandemic is like, I can't focus on books right now, but like you.
2: Yeah. And I have the, I weirdly have that with TV. I mm-hmm. feel like there's so much going on. I don't have the emotional energy to get into a new set of characters in a TV mm-hmm. show for what i don't even know what that says about how my brain works that like somehow digging into the like deep american history is feels more comfortable
0: I think you have like a better brain than the rest of us. Is what I'm is what I'm gonna Teach say. Like own? I think your brain is just like more evolved.
2: <laughs> I will never say there's us. no better. There's no better. Just different. <laughs> different,
0: different in like a, a special, unique, and needed way. Like your brain is just like needed right now. Someone needs to like carry on the reading right now.
2: Yeah, um, I know. And I think I just. I mean, I'm I'm a writers are readers for the yeah. most part too. Like I I really like how much. I've had this fight with people a lot, actually. Books versus movies, you know. Yeah. And people are like, "Well, why would I read the book when I can just watch the movie in an hour and a half?" And I'm like, "Why would you watch an hour and a half when you could get sucked into a story for a week?"
1: Mm-hmm. I like
2: that escape, so I think that's why I kind of gravitate to to books and and um, yeah.
0: No, I I f- get that. I and that's like, yeah, I really do think that's right. Writers are readers and in the most like insane sometimes way we are. Uh, But no, that's great. I love that, Um, what a great answer. Um, (laughs) So your book is just so special, (laughs) so special. And so like, it just seems so needed right now. And like where I feel like a lot of uh, the next steps in American history or in our American history has to be looking at our past and like these the way that we like, kind of, incorrectly told the past, and I feel like you've done such a special job in your book in like correcting like a lot of injustices done to these women by media and like just like I hate to say it, oh I hate to say it, but I have to in like fake news, like it's fake news. <laughs> I hate to say it, but like yeah, it's it's please uh, could you. Could you tell me about like the experience like before writing it but just being attracted to this story?
2: Yeah yeah because I think what one of the reasons I mean not only I mean there's a few things that I that I really found very personally satisfying in writing this book mm-hmm. um, and the, the it all kind of started because there's this the story that you may have heard and some people may have heard because it gets picked up and tossed around the media every few years of the Mercury 13, which Mm -hmm. the story goes is a group of women who were qualified to fly in space in the 1960s, but were kept out on account of their gender. And the more I read about the story, the more I'm like, this doesn't add up because I've done a lot of work in NASA's history. It doesn't doesn't strike me as this is the only thing that was at play in this story. Mm -hmm. And especially because the story always involves this villain called Jackie Cochran, who mm-hmm. is basically like Maleficent. Like she comes down, she's always in the story. It's like, yeah. the, the issue of women in women astronauts comes to a head with a um, congressional subcommittee hearing in 1962. And this story always comes up with this where like the women are arguing their their scientific right to be in the cockpit and the astronauts are like, no, no it's we only want men. And, and then Jackie comes down from her castle and like, talks about how women are not ready to be in the cockpit and then like goes home to hang out with her pet Raven. Like she's just this unexplored villainous character. And I'm like, that doesn't make sense because why is the foremost woman pilot doing this? There has to be more at play. So that's why like when I started researching for the story I started looking at her because I felt like there was something that need, the record needed to be set straight a little bit. And that's when I started looking at like, the story is actually Jackie's story because she knew everybody. <laughs> like like Eisenhower wrote his memoirs at her house. She saved mm-hmm. LBJ's life one day. Um, she was close personal friends with Randy Lovelace who did the medical testing of the astronauts. So like, that's a link that no one had ever really discussed. Um, mm-hmm. Chuck Yeager taught her how to fly through the sound barrier. Like all these, this, you know, she's, she's really this interesting. She, I call her like real Forrest Gump because she's <laughs> everywhere, but no one talks about her because she she has no children, she left no legacy. Um, she's also married to one of the ten richest people in the country at the time in the '30s, which is just like, yeah, okay. I think you, like- you- you we knew need, multiple presidents. Like
0: we need to go to the film studio with this, like real forest council. We're yeah. like, we got this. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Like I'm like right now. I'm like real forest council. All right, <laughs> locked in there. Um, it's what? it's the
2: it's the best way to describe how prevalent she was. Mm-hmm. So when you start looking at it, you realize that okay, it's it's so she's she learned to fly as an adult, Jackie did. And she was immediately like, she learned to fly in 1932 as a 26 year old. By the end of the decade, she was winning awards. She was on, you know, national aviation committees. She, she led the women's air force service pilots in the second world war Mm -hmm. and her whole thing, she kind of understood through all of that, how to play the game. Because as a woman in the 1930s and 1940s, you had to play the game that was male dominant to be able to work your way in and Jerry comes along and is raised in a very in a different era you know by the time Jerry learned to fly towards the end of the second world war women were pilots women were in factories because of the whole Rosie the Riveter thing and then you know women of Jerry's generation who then you know grew up with that And then that narrative was flipped by the government saying, you know, women take care of your men at home. And that whole like, get back in the kitchen narrative that was as much propaganda as the Rosie the Riveter, um, (laughs) you know, grew up fighting against that and said, well, I was never told I had these limitations, so let me in. Mm. Jackie knew you can't do that. So it really ends up being this whole thing of like, okay, they're both fighting for the same goal, which is women to have the ability to fly in space. Jackie understood that you can't just go in and force it and Jerry thought she could and none and none of the stories ever talk about why NASA picked test pilots mm-hmm. which for me was always like it it made sense it, maybe retro, retrospectively wasn't the right decision but when you think about it everything in space is trying to kill you mm-hmm. and everything in space was unknown in 1959 so what, what possible close job do you have on earth that sim- that is as close as possible to be an astronaut? It's a test pilot. Things go mm-hmm. really fast. Things are experimental. You have to make lightning fast decisions. You know how to not die in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, and of all of those people, you want the most medically fit because they're gonna die the least. <laughs> <laughs> in space basically right. so you know people are like oh nasa just you know deselected women it's like no nasa deselected 99.99 of the population 110 people met the base requirements and that was because they had no idea what was happening and mm-hmm. the idea of military guys who would follow orders made a ton of sense and it just so happened at the time that military test pilot schools were only open to men right. so you know, people making this oversimplified narrative of, oh, NASA didn't want women. It's like, no, it's, it's actually like these really deep decisions that became ingrained in the agency for a few years. Um, up until, up until the, the mid sixties, actually NASA started to look at women and then, and then didn't, didn't for very other, other reasons. But so I wanted to set the record straight on the story because I'm kind of sick of this narrative that, kind of makes, you know, women couldn't fly in space because of womanness. It's like, no, women are just people. We're all just people. Sometimes you just don't have the qualifications and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And these guys just didn't have the qualifications and that's okay. <laughs> what they did as women and as pilots is amazing. So let's also look at that. So I wanted to kind of bring to light what they actually accomplished in their own careers which is all mm-hmm. very stunning because they're fighting against so many odds in every <laughs> stance, but put it within the real context of history.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: there's a lot of things happening in this
0: book. No, no, that's like an amazing (laughs) like reason, I think, to be compelled to write a book to like, yeah, just like really like feel, to give them justice in a way. Um, In your book too, you talk about like kind of the more broader um, situational things going on. Like you talk about like um, Lyndon, President Lyndon, uh, Lyndon B. Johnson and how like, right that, I said the right president, right? Yes. (laughs) Yes, I did it. I'm like, I think it's just victorious. Yes, but like how, like his depression was. The depression was like affecting it, and like just other what NASA like was like going through at that time, and like the news outlets, why why they kind of like shaped the story this way. Was there anything in that that like surprised you to find out about like that just like you didn't see coming?
2: Um. Yeah, I think there were there were elements that when I started researching, I didn't know would mm-hmm. come into play. So, so you know, the, the John Glenn is another major figure in the book because he's kind of the the figurehead representing the male test pilots who have the opportunities. And there's also pr- the presidential strain, like you said, because you have to the president tells NASA what to do lyndon johnson not only got na- helped get nasa actually to become an organization when he was senate majority leader but then also was kind of the liaison between kennedy and nasa before right. kennedy's assassination um so you know all the, all these figures i knew had to be in there but then finding out that jackie and lbj are very close friends and that she had an influence over him that wow. i didn't realize is going to be so important but also understanding um i sort of got in the weeds a little bit on lbj just to to, to, you know, in the interest of being a good historian and trying to flesh out that little narrative so it's not just like, and he was in the office that day, you know, sure. um, to find out about his, his just like being so, over all of the stuff like that he just was not even like he didn't want to run again if Kennedy was going to go up for Mm re-election LBJ was taking himself off the ticket that 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 is such a a, an expression of like malaise with the job that like Mm -hmm. of course he's sort of like okay can you just get you you get the sense that he's when Jerry Cobb comes to him and asks him to direct NASA to allow her to fly you kind of understand why he's like I am sick of dealing with this and you have these, these letters. Cause I went to the LBJ library in Austin and you know you have these letters and he and his aide George Reedy would write notes and those are preserved. And you can see that he just like wrote, just file it, just file it. Like he's not even giving it thought. He's just like, I'm sick of it. Mm-hmm. And you don't, he like, you don't just blow stuff off because you don't care. You blow stuff off. Cause like, I have bigger issues than this one woman who wants to fly. And then it's sort of reinforces the idea that maybe her approach wasn't necessarily the right. I mean her, you know, her taking it on is incredibly valiant. You have to admire how strong she fought, but you know, you understand both sides of that, you know. So it was all that stuff. I didn't realize it would all come into play. The mm-hmm. emotional side of all of the people. I thought it was, was an interesting thing to discover. And finding all the letters, oh my god, <laughs> was just yeah, Jackie was they, a pack rat. Yeah. Like, saved everything and everything is in the Eisenhower library. Oh my God. God. The letters, the notes, the handwritten things that I just like in margins of (laughs) papers. And I'm like, you wrote that as a note. (laughs) It's just like, I'm having so much fun
0: you say this and I just imagine you in like a and this is just like because I think you're the coolest of course but like I imagine you like in a national treasure way like sneaking into the library to read these secret letters and then like finding like a little like like a little secret hatch to like find like the missing letter that no one like I like this just sounds so cool just because like
2: It sounds so cool. It's so funny because, like, okay, National Treasure is like my favorite guilty pleasure movie. Like, let's be honest, it's it's a terrible movie, but it's also the funnest movie. Um, I love movies.
0: I haven't seen it in years actually in LA State. I'm like, I need to rewatch it. I need to rewatch both yeah. of them. One and two. Oh no.
2: Yeah. The second one's not as fun, but it's no. still good. But oh my God, I do love that movie. And I love when people are like, it sounds like national treasure. I'm like, it's not. Cause it's <laughs> literally just sitting there sifting through very well-organized files and like mm-hmm. presidential or ar- library, national archives. There's a camera over every desk <laughs> to make sure you're, you know, you're not damaging anything. You're not stealing anything and respecting right. archives and right. respecting history, of course. And, um, but like it, when you find those links, when you find those little bits and pieces, it feels like national treasure. <laughs> like it's that exciting for for a researcher to find that. Um, it's so cool. it, it really is. Like that's a it's a, it's not a bad analogy. It doesn't look as cool, but it feels as cool.
0: <laughs> no, like I I like. Now you're making me like think. Should I be a researcher? Should I go to just like go to? I want to. I want that emote, that feeling. I'm just like feeling it's like a page stealing that Declaration. of independence. yeah. yeah no, that's. Uh, but
2: also, I do not advocate stealing the Declaration not,
0: of Independence. Let's be clear. The Dialogue Podcast does not approve of stealing the Declaration of Independence in yeah. any way. We just yep. think that the movie is cool. The movie National Treasure is a cool movie. Um, no. Um, my next question for you is um more from my own perspective so I have an MFA in writing which is short to say that I have no science background I have nothing like I the last science class I took was like chemistry for liberal arts students which is like yeah just like they're like oh they're not they they don't know science they let's be easy <laughs> um how but I've always been like interested in anything like space related or all these because like I feel like in the past maybe I mean forever we've had great space movies but like in the past like 10 years we've gotten really cool space movies that are not just like the 2001 a space odyssey but like the like actual science and like the yeah. work put into like um actually like going into space the people yeah. who are like actually doing the math the science yeah. the drawings on the whiteboard that I yeah. don't understand um actually I do have a math degree so like I probably should understand it but I don't it all went away the second I got that degree um wow. weirdly um but like how would you for a person who like wants to like know more about this but doesn't have that background is there a way is there like how would you tell them to like get into it how, like where what's a great like resources for them to try and
2: get into learning about it you mean
0: learning about it or just like like in a casual yeah. just like you know in a yeah. the same way like you want to learn about like uh anything else you know
2: yeah i mean i would definitely check out my youtube channel i'm kidding i mean i'm not I mean, but um,
0: <laughs> please please plug your youtube channel for us so I um that.
2: i think i think so i always say because like um my because my background is actual I, both my degrees are actually arts degrees um mm-hmm. like they're history degrees it's mm-hmm. just that i happened to do just because i mean i've been obsessed with space since I was a kid, since I was seven, um, that like, you know, history that's made of science allows you to talk about science, but in English. And I always joke that like, you know, I've been able to have a career as a science communicator because scientists and engineers don't necessarily speak English so I just translate what they do and make it accessible. So if, and, you know in terms of learning about this stuff, there's there are some really good science communicators out there who are experts at translating this really intense, really detailed science stuff into everyday language because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you know and it totally makes sense an expert who's like I don't know wrapped up in the weeds of like underwater geologic formations, random mm-hmm. thing, um, you know, is not going to be able to explain that to a right. grade school kid. And grade school for the average person is probably where their science understanding is if you don't work in it, because right. how much do you remember? You exactly. A math degree and don't remember <laughs> it. So, it's, which, which makes sense. <laughs> I mean, um, so you, it's, I think there's just a lot of really good people out there who, and I, I like to think I do an okay job um, at communicating and kind of breaking this stuff down in casual language that makes it, you know, accessible. Because at the end of the day, I mean, scientists love sharing their work. Mm -hmm. People love sharing the excitement of science. Um, Mm -hmm. Even though I don't work in science, I love getting people excited about this stuff, even just for a minute, even if just for one minute, you're like, oh, I had no idea that the astronauts when they went to the moon had to fly a figure eight path. Oh, I had no idea that this is the first time they had retractable landing gear. Cause like we've, you know, if you've been on a plane, you know, the wheels fold up, you know, you don't right. think about when that started. So mm-hmm. I just about finding those people who are good at it and who are passionate about it. I always, and I, my, my tip, if you're ever looking to sort of like get into Psycom, I always, (laughs) my way is always uh, take what you love and try to explain it to your drunk friend because your drunk friend has the attention span of a child for about two minutes. If you can't get them hooked in those two minutes, you got to try again.
0: No, the... The way that you're talking about it, and especially, like, translating for scientists, I, to bring it back to movies, because that's how my brain thinks, mm-hmm. um, I imagine it was, like, Amy Adams in Arrival, when you're just, like, translating these, like, yeah. in, the, in the way the scientists are, like, because, yeah, yeah. That's, and, like, that's just so important, because we need, like, more, it's it just the way, I feel like, yeah, that's so important to translate, because I don't understand science, but if the, someone the tells me. Is-
2: yeah, it's all so cool. It's just a matter yeah. of making sure it's language that you understand. Like, that's what I did when I was with the New Horizons team just for the mm-hmm. month of encounter, just for that one month we were close. Um, and I did a video series called Pluto in a Minute. And I broke down one interesting thing about the mission in roughly a minute mm-hmm. every day. And it was so cool because I got, like I did one on the trajectory of the spacecraft because it's really hard to get to Pluto in the first place, mm-hmm. but also get to Pluto between some of the moons. Um, okay. And when you're when you're doing that, it took nine years and you can't mm-hmm. just go straight to Pluto, right? Pluto's right. orbiting, you have, to, you have to aim to where it's going to be. But mm-hmm. if your rocket's not powerful enough, you need more velocity. So you have to swing by other planets to pick up some of that speed, which you know people talk about it like, oh yeah, we did, we did a Jupiter flyby okay, well, we need to explain that for the average person because what the hell does that mean? So I got to sit down. I can't remember her name, um, which is just terrible because I use this as an example all the time, but I got to sit down with the woman who designed the trajectory and she was so lovely and so cool. Mm-hmm. And I have enough of an understanding about this stuff. And she's the expert who planned it that between the two of us, I was able to break it down simply enough that she signed off on like, yes, it's correct mm-hmm. and get it out there and share it with, you know, I don't know how many people watch that video, but you know, hundreds of hundred thousand people or whatever learned a little bit about the challenge of getting to Pluto and I'm like that's very cool yeah. that I was able to translate this super intense thing in about a minute to people who don't even know what a flyby is and it's just it's so satisfying it's so exciting for me to be able to to help people just like like be like this is cool and I can right. get it I don't need to be a math person
0: <laughs> no that I well I now that you've told me this I have a or, like don't no pressure to do it but do you have any of that one minute like those one minute facts that you would love to share right now on the podcast that like I mean just the coolest one that you can think and or anything that like excites you or you're just like the people need to know this I would love to hear. Man,
2: but no pressure I'm 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 trying I'm trying to think and there's so many. Let so me just talk for like a second thing so I'm not just staring at the window alone. Um I think I think one of the one of the the like one minute facts and I give this to people a lot is because we if you okay so this is so hard to do in audio only because I use my hands and so I talk a lot. So if you're listening, I'm gesticulating wildly. Um, so the, the Apollo lunar landing missions, <laughs> the Apollo lunar landing missions. Um, people always wonder why they landed with one spacecraft and keeping the other one in orbit because you always have the story of like you know Mike Collins is the loneliest man on Apollo 11, taking that picture of the Earth with the lunar module in it. it's Everybody but him and this whole thing. People are always like, why did they do that? And I love because the very simple explanation is all right if you have a rocket stack and i'm holding a pen up if you have a rocket stack your entire rocket is just the fuel to get there and the tip of it is your your payload you need all that energy to get off the earth so you have to make it lighter so if you think about the apollo missions you're basically throw it's like You think about like your car, and as you're running out of gas, you throw stuff out of the car to lighten the load as you go so you can get every last bit out of that tank of gas. So at that point, you're throwing out the seats, you're throwing off the doors. That's basically what the Apollo missions did. They got rid of the sections as they went along. So the whole rocket left. They left this really heavy fuel tank in orbit. But then they didn't even bring the lunar landing spacecraft back. They kicked that out off into space and they kicked the gas tank off at the end to only come back with the one thing they needed. So when you look at how modular the landing profile of that mission was, it it becomes an interesting study. It wasn't, it wasn't about, it had nothing to do with the easiest way to go to the moon. It had everything to do with the way to make it work on the rocket that could realistically be built in the 1960s. Because why build something that could only ever go to the moon it was purpose built for that that function purely mm. because there wasn't time to bake a builder rocket ba- build a bigger rocket that could carry something that could all land on the moon my god there's your one minute random apollo <laughs> fact <effect. laughs>
0: that was fantastic and i know there're going to there're listeners who are going to be like oh my God, she's so cool. Um, I want more. So for those listeners, could you plug your um, YouTube channel so they can will happily
2: plug my YouTube channel? <laughs> yeah. My YouTube channel is called the vintage space. Um, if you Google it, I should come up pretty quick. Um, but I imagine there should be links somewhere. It- Attached to this episode, but yeah, um, vintage space. I'm currently switching formats a little bit right now, and I'm doing these deep dives into topics. So I'm I'm just finishing up a big deep dive on Cold War aerial espionage. So looking at the U2 plane, the Corona satellites, nothing to do with the virus, and the uh, SR71 slash A12 slash Oxcart, which was the successor to the U2. So it's looking at the geopolitical uh, climate that'll, that that created a need for aerial espionage and the technology that allowed it to happen Um, and getting into the weeds on that but I also have a lot like a ton I mean I've been doing it it's going on nine years that I've had the channel going so I have a ton of videos on like how the Apollo missions worked details about you know weird space stuff that you never knew you wanted to know about and uh, yeah a lot of a lot of that stuff is coming up
0: so listeners you have like we're stuck inside and if you like, you need something to like, just take your time out. <laughs> this is just like fun education. Listen, <laughs> watch. I mean, this is watch her watching videos and just like uh, just fall in love with space <laughs> and just all the yeah, science. Oh it'll my be god, fun. <laughs> this is that's so much fun. Thank you for plugging that for us. Um, my next question for you sorry, I just got so, <laughs> just like, I, my brain just, like, is still on the, just those cool facts. Um, while writing this book, could you tell me about, like, um, the research that, like, d- did, did you ever come across um, anything about these women that you were just, like, oh, wow, this is so much different than it is today, but maybe not, maybe there's something that's like deeply like still connected to how either that, either how NASA works or how just like women in any field who are trying to like, you know, progress and like move forward, it's still directly related to like what I'm seeing reading or researching about these women.
2: Yeah, there's, I think more than anything, I found a lot of parallels to what mm-hmm. we still see um, just being a, being a woman in a male-dominant field. I mean, science is very male-dominant. Space right. is male-dominant. Mm-hmm. Space history is like the most male-dominant of all the male-dominant arenas. Um, there, I, I mostly found a lot of interesting similarities mm-hmm. um, in kind of what some of these women were up against. And one element that I loved, and it was kind of hard to get it into the narrative, but I really fought for it, um, was that Jackie, in addition to being the foremost pilot of the 20th century and just a standout pilot, um, owned a luxury cosmetics line. Oh. And I love that she did that because she got her start. She she earned a ton of money as a beautician. That's how she started flying and, and ended up in New York in the first place. Um, but she learned to fly because she wanted to actually launch her own cosmetics line. And she met a man at dinner one night. He said, if you're gonna cover enough ground to sell cosmetics in the depression, you got to get your pilot's license. You got to get her out more, and then she fell in love with flying. But th- that man eventually became her husband. Um, but she never lost that desire to be both a spectacular pilot and feminine. And I loved that she refused to compromise on those two sides of herself because I think this is this is something that that is very prevalent. Where you know, if you're a woman in science, you're not supposed to care what you look like. If you're a woman who's a makeup artist on Instagram or whatever, you're probably not smart like why can't you be both and I it's just it's I don't understand why we make this this division it doesn't make any sense um so and me personally like I love I love the uh this kind of mid-century style hashtag vintage style not vintage values um and I I I love the femininity that's involved in that kind of that era and I love that Jackie refused to compromise it and I've been hunting down as I hold up so I can show you even the listeners can't see one of Jackie's original uh compacts from her cosmetics line that still works I have a bunch of them but Mm -hmm. yeah I've collected these artifacts of her cosmetics line and I love that she used it when she won a race she'd like get out of the plane like holding her lipstick posing in the cockpit and marketed this whole thing is like oh I have this this little perk up stick of like those those interlocking uh those interlocking little containers the perk up stick that fits in your purse or your flight bag as the case may be and it gets you know gets very into the marketing like that right. it was so interesting that she refused to compromise that and that that was not separated that it was not seen as a negative for her but became a negative for women and just the way that she would first that for for some reason felt so interesting given the modern climate of women being forced to choose that she didn't. And I, I, I liked that. I liked that a lot. But for the most part, I mean, I just thought it was really interesting. Um, I talked about this in the introduction that women are so often defined by their biology. And you see it in movies a lot that, yeah. you know, the woman is there to be the woman, even if she's a spy, she's also first and foremost a woman. And this idea that all of these women, you know, some of them were mothers and they chose to be mothers first some of them were mothers and they chose to be pilots first and that either way that's okay right. and that you know they they had that because they fought for that freedom even if it was fighting for it within their own lives I think that also really resonated with me um and something that I think resonate should resonate and does resonate with a lot of women now um so there was mostly that mostly when I was in researching this was for those kind of echoes that you see
0: that's so it, like when you say that like I feel like that too is something that like I'm just now which is (laughs) way too late than later than we should be seeing but like seeing that struggle and a lot of women had where they were like I was just watching um one of my favorite things that I've watched in the past year was the queen's gambit and I don't know if you saw it yet when you do it's amazing but um like the, the main character, her she was like a chess prodigy, but like always criticized because she loved fashion and she yeah. always looking great. And she always loved having like just this amazing style. And people were like, no, you can't have style and be taken seriously as a professional. And it's just like, no, that's not true. That's not like, you can be both. You can be, th- no one ever um, tells a man, you can't love science and love, uh, I don't know with something really manly but <laughs> I don't know cigars <laughs>
2: I was just my mind just went to mad men it's like they just yeah. drank and smoked cigars a bunch so right. yeah I don't know like,
0: you, men, you men can't be alcoholics and run a business no they never said that like okay. these, like no, that's my mad men that's like how I see all these like okay. they're all alcoholics but they can run a business but like a woman can't Wear lipstick and be taken as seriously yeah. as that in that, or not even yeah. wear it. Love it, like love being like, yeah. Um, just, just having their, um, uh, just their own style or anything else feminine and be something else. That's yeah. such a. I'm oh, sorry. Go Yeah, on.
2: it's it's funny. It's funny that you bring up the woman can't wear like wear lipstick because I I actually have gotten more than one email of someone saying, I really like your work, but I would take you more seriously if you didn't wear a lipstick. And I'm like, this baffles the brain of like, why, why? It, it's not like, it's not like I speak differently depending on what, if I'm wearing makeup or what dress I'm wearing. And it's just, and part of the reason why I want to get it in the book and why I'm very kind of outspoken of just like, I like fashion and stuff is just like, stop telling, stop telling girls. Who are going to grow up and do this in 20 years? Stop telling girls that they have to pick.
0: Right.
2: Like, especially you know, there's already a huge drop off of young girls' interest in science because they're not supposed to be smarter than the boys that they have crushes on. I mean, that's I don't have kids, but anecdotally from my friends who are teachers or parents that they see about that that middle school age is when the drop off happens because they start to want to date, they start to like boys, Um, you know, they start to get romantic interests, and that they don't want to be smarter than somebody because and then, and then that's where you see the shift. And it's like stop telling girls they can either be in science or be feminine. No, I. Or just say, just do you love something? Cool. Yeah. Do it.
0: No, the way that you. Said, as long
2: as what you love is, you know. Just not being awful to people.
0: Yeah, <laughs> like as long as not causing anyone harm. Go. Yeah. No, I yeah. am. It's so funny you say that because, like, yeah, I've gotten that too with um uh just like someone telling me oh you can't go into this like as a black man they're like you can't make sure you have a certain haircut or you have a you don't say certain words that are like um like just like uh too black you know what i mean like they yeah it's, it's that it's that just like it's um i
2: it's, it, there's like the inherent biases that come in various things. And it took me and like, I, I mean, I say this, it took me 30 odd years to finally just be like, okay, if yeah. you can't see past your own inherent bias, I don't need to change for that. Because for exactly. years, I, I actually, when I started writing, um I was blogging, I didn't, put my face anywhere because Mm. I knew that I would be taken because like I already look young and I know that and when I was you know when I started writing 10 years ago I looked even younger and I was like I'm not going to be taken seriously Mm. so if I just don't put my face out there maybe they'll pay attention to my words right and as soon as I started doing YouTube stuff then then the real hate came um and it was just it it took me it took me a long time to just be like fuck it I'm going to, I'm so sorry if I can't swear on this podcast, okay, bleep over. it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, bleep it. I'm going to dress the way I want to do because it makes me feel confident. And ultimately when I'm confident, I feel better about the work that I'm doing because why not? And if you can't pay attention to what I'm saying because of the lipstick that I'm wearing, that's on you. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to, but it took me so long to just be okay with that. And I, I really, I I would just like I'm hope my hope for for young the neck the younger girls and the younger men and the younger boys is just like if you if you love something and don't not do something because other people make you feel bad about it right. if you love this and you love wearing nail polish just do it who cares
0: Right like do <laughs> yeah. you just, uh and that's like I just um, I can only imagine the better world that we would have if like all of this like we just let people like be who they are and do express what they
2: themselves. express be themselves. themselves be authentic
0: to be. themselves and that's something i think like i mean a terrible pain but the pandemic has i feel like let, let a lot of people be able to like because you're not in the office you're not you're not like we're not like we're able to be ourselves while like at being at home and doing um being on video chat has been like kind of more freeing for people to like not have that restriction of like office policy and office yeah. like dress codes and all this stuff and we've been able and like I hope that continues afterwards and like we just let people and like for like a woman like Jackie's legacy to be like to be for young women to see her and be like she she loves all this feminine and openly feminine things and she's the successful pilot and pioneer and all this thing I just I yeah. that's just amazing to see like an icon like that <laughs> to yeah. use like I I feel like that's like very like new hip uh, I say that and I like age 10 years <laughs> new hip language but like yeah she's an icon she is a yeah she's an icon yeah. to like just it was
2: the more the more i dug into her the more i just and like and i feel like i i should say you know be very upfront like she also was not a perfect person right. like like everybody she's not okay. perfect and i put this in the author's note actually that you know both of them lie both of these women lie in their memoirs both of them inflate certain things both of them have their flaws like like for all of the amazing marketing that i loved in her cosmetics line the 30s that was all about it was called wings to beauty this whole yeah. idea of you know flying up into the air and and being who you are even if that's feminine in the 50s the marketing became but recapturing youth and I've seen a lot of articles and beauty history bloggers saying like oh it's just an ageist and I'm like it was when she started lying about her own age it reflects her own insecurity if you know Jackie which I think is you know so so you know whether or not and that also reflects the time when you know in the 50s became like it was much more about being feminine because that was your job now says the government. So, you know, it's, it's more layered than that, but I I put it up there that like, they're not perfect because at the end of the day, women are also just humans. (laughs) And like, what man has not lied about something to impress somebody, like whether it's impressing a romantic interest, whether it's, you know, trying to one-up the man in the office, you know, men do it all the time. These women also did it. So like, as much as I think there's a lot, I'm, I'm just, just to be clear, cause she's, she did some shitty things too, <laughs> but like, you know, there's elements of people that you can really take inspiration from. And right. I think it's just important, especially, oh my God, especially right now is, is you can, you can look at somebody and say like, not everything you've done and is, is great, but you can still respect that you've done a lot of great things. And right. to be, she's not like insanely awful like some I've seen on Twitter the last few <laughs> days oh my god I can't uh-huh. stand Twitter anymore right. but you know it's just just um yeah they're human mm-hmm. and I tried and I tried to portray them both with their flaws and not leave the negative elements out because th- that's history that's real
0: right. exactly no I yeah. like I'm also gonna lie in my memoir I'm gonna it's gonna start off with me saying I looked like a young Denzel like of course <laughs> <I did. laughs> of course not but like it will be yeah. in. And I will say this now: it is a lie to everyone listening. But I, it will be the first sentence of my memoir. Um, but eh, well, and that's and that's human, and that's human. It's human
2: nature, and it's human nature. And it's I think it's important to to look at historical figures as humans. And there's still a lot of elements, even if you know she maybe didn't play the whole women in space thing, right? Maybe she was a little bit too too harsh in it and a little too self interested, but there are a lot of things that she did that are inspirational and Jerry's the same way. She did a lot of things right and she did some things very sketchily wrong. And yeah. <laughs> you're just like, oh.
0: No, and that's that's human. That's it. That's it's human. human. And I, yeah, we, Yeah, like, Jerry,
2: uh, I feel like I say Jerry like 100% in her memoirs. <laughs> she yeah. talks about this like crazy romance she had with her boss, left out the fact that he was married.
0: And like- <laughs> Right? <laughs> you just see God. <laughs> by the time
2: her memoirs came out he was dead so who else was gonna like argue that their romance was maybe even fabricated it's very unclear
0: (laughs) you know what and like that's human that's and that's honestly good storytelling that's yeah good storytelling no um well uh, sadly we have to wrap up but like do you have I mean, this has been a fantastic conversation, and like, I'm loving this. I've had fun. <laughs> I had so much fun. We like can continue this for like another three hours, but we probably shouldn't. But do you have any last things you would love to say to our um, any last comments about the book, or just anything that you would love to share to our listeners? Um, I'm trying
2: to think. Uh, I I feel like I should always be more prepared to have that last kind of final elevator pitch for the book, but um. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think what I what I'd like to say, kind of what I just said about this book, is is really just that it's the dual biography of these two really incredible people. It's not they're not defined by being women, even though that is kind of an overarching theme. It's not about them taking on things for the sake of a feminine femininity. It's it's really them pursuing what they want as people. And even if they didn't go about it the right way, I think there's a, a lot of inspirational elements in both of them that are so applicable today that is, makes like researching them made me want to take something on and take yeah. a stand for something because it's so amazing to read how much they did. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really at the end of the day what I kind of hope to share in this, you know, getting history right, bringing back the memories of these, these two women, but also making it something that you can can read and really fall into and really I tried to write it so it feels like you're in the story with them
0: oh my god and, and I
2: hope if you if you guys pick it up that it sucks you into the narrative and you just get lost in their their lives
0: oh my god like what a great what a great elevator <laughs> <laughs> like that's an elevator bitch you say you like faked me out where you're like I don't know and then you just gave me the perfect one that's um it oh my god well thank you so much right. Amy, for just coming on the podcast and just having a just making this such a fun time and um, and just like sharing your book with us and uh, just if you you can order uh, right now I can't come in but like you can order for pickup that book at our at skylightbooks.com um, or you can call in and order um, any l- like quick just one sentence thing you um, want to say to our listeners or in, readers in general? doesn't have to be about the book. In general, (laughs) Uh,
2: I feel like in general, I, um, I mean, the one thing I keep wanting to say to everybody is just take care of yourselves, stay well and stay healthy and yeah, dive into a good book and escape into a slightly less insane period of time for a little bit, escape into books and take care of yourselves.
0: Escape into books is a perfect way to end this. So thank you guys so much for listening. with <laughs> yeah. to all my beautiful listeners and readers. Um, and you all have a great and wonderful day.
1: Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.